If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 25. If you happen to be visiting, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for, I'm not sure, it's, it's been quite a while. And uh, in God's providence, I didn't have to have a standalone sermon for our officer installation today. I was able to find everything I needed in this passage. It, it is a lengthy passage. The plan is to begin in verse 13 of chapter 25 and to read through the end of chapter 26. I'll introduce the passage, read the passage, and then there will be a, a brief three-point charge for our officers um, at the end. But I promise you there, there will be uh, application for the rest of you to gleam to glean as well. In this passage, Paul has the opportunity to testify about his own background, his, his story, and also the hope he has in Christ. And he has the opportunity, opportunity to do this one final time before one final ruler, before he gets on the boat and sails to Rome. And I know where some of your minds might be thinking. If you've been with us the past several months and you haven't missed a Sunday, maybe deep down you're thinking, again? Really? We've already seen Paul address the crowd at the temple. We've seen him address the elders in Jerusalem. We've seen him be evacuated to Caesarea, where he testifies before Governor Felix and Governor Festus. And now he's doing the same old song and dance before some other king. When is he finally going to get on the move? When will we read of something different? Well, the answer to that question is next week, chapter 27, when he does get on the ship. But listen, we... I hope you aren't surprised by this because this is what we as Presbyterians refer to as holy slowness. Holy slowness. We believe that issues uh, can take a while to work themselves out. They go from sessions to presbyteries to general assembly back to presbyteries. And important issues can take a while to be resolved. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's holy slowness. There's a bit of that here. But there's also something else. An important reason why Luke is being so thorough in his record keeping of Paul's legal journey. There's a reason Luke is keeping a record of everyone Paul is standing before. A record of all these leaders who say from their own mouth, I find no guilt in Paul. All of this is to help in his defense. When Paul finally gets to Rome and finally has the opportunity to appeal his case before Caesar, all these minutes, these detailed notes can be handed in. You don't have to be an attorney to understand that organized, thorough records can make or break a trial. 
And these records will go with Paul to Rome. So I think that's partly what Luke is, is doing here. There's also something else that I was reminded of. There's a comment that the Lord speaks back in Acts 9. This comes just after the the first account we're given of Paul's conversion. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He encounters the risen Christ. He's afterwards led by the hand into the city because he can't see. And Luke then introduces us to a disciple there in Damascus named Ananias. Ananias has given a vision, and he's told, go to this house. There's a man there named Saul who is praying, lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Do you remember how Ananias responded? He said, Lord, are you sure... I've heard this is, a, this is a bad guy. It sounds like you're telling one of the three little pigs to walk into the big bad wolf's cave. But what answer does the Lord give Ananias? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The Lord takes this big bad wolf and makes him his chosen instrument. Paul will be the means by which the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom of God expanded. And he'll carry this name. We've already seen this as we've gone through Acts. We've seen him carry the name of Jesus through three missionary journeys all over modern day Turkey and Greece. He's taken it to the Gentiles. He's also carried the name before the children of Israel. What was the first stop he would make every time he entered a new city? He would go to the synagogue. He's he's arrested in the temple and has an opportunity to testify to the Jews there in Jerusalem. He's carried the name of Jesus before them. And now we'll see Paul this chosen instrument, will carry the name of Jesus before kings. The last two weeks we've seen him testify before Roman governors. Today we'll see him before a Jewish king. And I wanted to highlight that to simply remind you that God's word will never fail. Before I read this passage again, I would encourage you to listen carefully again. It is a lengthy passage. I'm not going to look at every detail. It's, if you wanted a full exposition on Acts 26, you're not getting it this morning. But I wanted to focus my charge on, on our officers. But again, wonderful applications for the rest of you. But let's pray and then read our text. Father God, we thank you for this word that you have given to us that makes us wise unto salvation. You've told us that we we don't need it to know that you exist. We can look at nature. We can look at the skies, the heavens, declare your handiwork. Nature tells us that you are there and you are powerful and you are wise and you are capable. 
But Father, we need a special revelation that we might know how broken, sinful people like ourselves might be restored and reconciled to a holy God. We, we need a special word that would tell us the means by which we rebels become your children and heirs along with Christ. And so we do thank you for this word. Would you bless its reading, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 25, verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. But it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today, 
against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we, all, uh, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that being born the first to rise from the dead. He would bring light to, to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying this, these as, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, uh, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. 
but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for he has not been in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I told you that was a long passage today. We're going to spend in my charge, we're going to look at this interaction that, well, interaction that Paul has with Agrippa. Um, But first I need to tell you just a little bit about Agrippa. I believe he's the last of the Herod dynasty that you'll meet in Scripture. I think if you're honest, how many times have you read through Scripture and you see Herod just keeps popping up and you're like, how old is that guy? I I thought he died, but now he's he's here again. There are lots of different Herods. There's Herod the Great, who's reigning at the birth of Christ. There's Herod Antipas, the king of who Jesus referred to as the fox. There's Herod Agrippa I, who put James to death and is killed in Acts 12. And here we meet Herod Agrippa II, who is a part of this Jewish family, this dynasty that has been allowed by the Romans to rule over this Jewish region. And with Herod Agrippa is his sister, Bernice, who is also his queen. They were in an incestuous relationship. That was a scandal to even the Romans. And so these two show up, most likely to pay their respects to the new governor, Festus. And being Jews themselves, Festus tells them of Paul, hoping that they could help, that they could shed some light on the specific charges so that Festus might have something to write to the emperor, some, some charge that would accompany this prisoner. And here again, we see that Paul is given the opportunity to speak and to bring the name of Jesus Christ before this king. And here are the three charges I have for our officers. I want us to think about Paul's history, Paul's hope, and Paul's heart. First, we'll look at Paul's history. He is very honest about his past. We're given some details here that we have not been given anywhere else. Confessions from Paul. 
Like, I tried to make the Christians blaspheme. I I tried to make them slander the name of Jesus Christ. I, I tried to make them speak lightly of him and, or to profane his holy name. He, he goes on to say that his words, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And we see that Paul was doing that right up to the point the Lord met him on the road and saved him. It's clear Paul is not reveling in his past. He's not glorying in his past. He's not missing the good old days. Instead, his point is to say, look how merciful and how perfect is the patience of Jesus Christ. To you men who have been nominated and trained and elected. No one is expecting you to be perfect or that you will continue to be perfect. No one is expecting that you don't have a past. But just as Paul, you have been chosen as his instrument in the leading and serving of his church. And so my Prayer is that Paul's words, which I'm about to read, that he will write to Timothy, that they will become your words as well. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Man, I pray that you would see in the grace of Jesus a display of his perfect patience in your life so that you might be an example to the rest of us. That's Paul's history. Then we have his hope. Paul's hope must also be the hope of our officers as you lead and serve this congregation. What was his hope? Well, he tells us back in verse 6. I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise God made to our fathers. That was his hope, and that must be yours as well. This promise that God made to our fathers. 
that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. That through one family line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That a perfect law keeper would come and accomplish what we were clearly unable to accomplish on our own. That this promised one would be a king from the line of David. He will sit on the throne and reign forever. That Almighty God would pour out His Spirit on His people and write His law on our hearts. That was the promise made to the fathers. Paul's hope is in that promise and in the one of whom it was foretold that he would suffer and die and rise. I would ask you, where is your hope? Congregation, I can assure you that these men have placed their hope in the God who raises the dead and who opens the eyes of the blind and brings men and women out of darkness and the power of Satan to himself and forgives their sins and places them among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. You know, the unbelieving world, just like Festus, might say that we are crazy and we've lost our minds. But just as Paul said in verse 25, this hope of ours is founded on true and rational words. Not mysticism, not or some secret knowledge. This hope, Paul's hope, the believer's hope, must be yours as well, officers. Third, we've seen Paul's history, Paul's hope, and finally, we see Paul's heart. We get a glimpse of this, don't we, at the end of the passage. He puts the king on the spot. He backs him into a corner, and that's not where King Agrippa wants to be. And so King Agrippa asks a very clever counter question, saying, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's saying, Paul, do you really think that some 20-minute speech is enough to convince me that Jesus is Lord? And then we see Paul's answer to Agrippa's question, and it tells us something of his heart. In verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. O king, it is my prayer to God that not only you, but everyone else here, Jews and Gentiles, all the important folks who are dressed up with all the pomp like peacocks, and also the servants who are in the hallway within earshot. Agrippa, I want all of them, everyone, to know and experience the same grace that's been shown to me. That was his heart. And as officers in his church, whether elder or deacon, whether shepherd or servant, you likewise are to be zealous for this, uh, that the glory of Christ be spread. 
one final note under this uh, bullet point of the heart of Paul that I think is so important for officers. His heart was not only zealous for the spread of the gospel, but it was tender. We see this in his words. I want them to be like me except for these chains. You know, there's a saying we know, misery loves company. It's describing a bitter person who wishes for other people to suffer just like they're suffering. Well, that saying, misery loves company, is polar opposite from what Paul is saying. Paul says, I want you to believe like I believe. I want you to know Christ like I know Christ. I want your soul to know the joy and peace that my soul knows just without these chains. He's not ashamed of his chains. He'll he'll speak of them in his letters. He'll wear them as a badge of honor. But he doesn't wish them on these chains what he hopes will be infant newborn believers. Calvin helps us here. He says, Paul was concerned for those to whom he wished faith without trouble or cross. Those who did not yet believe in Christ were far from being ready to fight for the gospel. And it is surely right for all godly people To have this gentleness of spirit, patiently bearing their own cross while wishing well to others and trying as far as possible to relieve them of all trouble. Officers, may Paul's heart be your heart, one that is zealous for the gospel and one that does not wish trouble on those who are weak. Being patient with those who are not quite ready to fight for the gospel. Having a gentle spirit. Patiently bearing your own cross while simultaneously doing all you can to bear up the burdens of those who are weak. That's my charge to you. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work it does and the the work of your spirit through it that is accomplished week in and week out through these very simple means of your church gathering to sit under your word and worship you. Father, I do thank you again for these men, for raising them up, for bringing them to us, for the work of grace that that you've begun in their hearts, a work of grace which you've promised to complete one day in Christ Jesus. Father, would you bless what we're about to do? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.